I want to sincerely welcome you to Hagerstown Church. It's a joy to see every one of you here, to be singing with you, and, and uh, to be opening God's Word, and, and here in just a little bit to be taking uh, the elements of the Lord's Supper together. What a joy joyous day that we have. Every, every day that we come together and we celebrate the Lord's Day is a special day, but today I trust will be a new uh, set of new morning mercies. Uh, right before we jump into our study of the book of Hebrews, I want to dismiss Hubtown Kids. And so if you're uh, in ages uh, three to five, you're going to be going to the Blue Station. This morning you're going to be learning about the captain of the storm, the captain of the storm, and uh, identifying the fact that Jesus calms the storm. Uh, also, if you are uh, ages uh, uh, six to up to fifth grade, you're going to be going this way into the gray station, um, and you're going to be uh, learning the answer to this question. Parents, I want to make sure that you're, uh, you're aware of this as well. The question that they'll be learning is, does Christ's death mean all our sins can be forgiven? Does Christ's death mean that all our sins can be forgiven? Well, the answer is yes, because Christ's death on the cross, fully paid the penalty for our sin, God will remember our sins no more. Let me read that again. Does Christ's death mean all our sins can be forgiven? Yes. Because Christ's death on the cross fully paid the penalty for our sins, God will remember our sins no more. It's wonderful how the Lord will sew together all the elements of the songs and the, the kids' lessons into the text and though this lesson was chosen many, or this uh, passage of scripture for us to be looking at this morning was chosen months and months ago, it's an interesting how the Lord can sew that all together. So if you have your copy of God's word, I want to invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Now here we just regularly believe that the Lord's word is uh, for his people, and when we open it up and look at it, and we ask questions about it, and we work to understand what he's saying and apply it to our lives, that he will meet us there, and that he'll use it greatly in our lives and so we regularly just open up and look at the next passage of Scripture. And by the Lord's providence, the next passage of Scripture is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 18. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. If you, don't, if you didn't bring a copy of, of God's Word, you're welcome to use the hard black Bible in front of you. That is going to be found, our, our, our Scripture today will be found on 1188, page 1188. Feel free to use that this morning. This is what the word of God says there. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being 
tempted. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, again, we just pray that you would do what I cannot. Father, that you would do what this congregation, even assembled together and focused, cannot. Allow us to see Jesus more fully, lifted up. Father, let us see him in all of his sovereign glory. Father, let us see him in his loveliness and lowliness as he comes near to us. Father, help us to understand his suffering and how it's necessary for our salvation. We ask this thing again boldly in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, we're going to be talking about fitness. Fitness. Some of you got a little nervous there. We're not talking about physical fitness. We're not talking about health, necessarily. And we're not talking about fitting this three-hour sermon into a 30-minute time slot. No, we're talking about the fitness of Jesus' suffering. The fitness, the fittingness of Jesus' suffering. The main idea for you this morning, hopefully it'll be on the screen for you. And if you're taking notes, you might want to jot this down, maybe in the margin of your Bible or wherever you take notes. Here's the main idea this morning. It was fitting for Jesus, the sovereign son of God, to suffer. It was fitting for Jesus, the sovereign son of God, to suffer. We ended our time in the scriptures last week by looking at this same idea. That the sovereign one, the one to whom all things were submitted, would taste death. It's almost impossible in our minds to hold both of those truths at the same time and not think scandal. We've seen such a clear treatment of Jesus' exaltation as the Son of God. We've seen clearly his supremacy. We've seen his power. And now we've seen his power submitted to suffering, even to the point of death. Not just to us in this postmodern era, but also in this first century, The preaching of the cross, the suffering of the cross of Christ seems to be folly. It seems to be foolishness that that could take place. How could the eternal son of God, to which everything is submitted, over which he rules all, be submitted to suffering, even to the point of death? Scriptures make it clear for us that God the Father does all things well. And so we would hope to understand, at least to just trust, that these two truths are good and pleasant for us. The Scriptures tell us in verse 10, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things consist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect, through suffering, fitting. It could be translated fitting, obviously. It could also be, a, be translated appropriate or suitable. And so the question we're asking this morning is, how is it fitting? How is it appropriate? How is it suitable that God the Son would suffer? This morning, though this answer is inexhaustible, 
This morning, the text gives us seven reasons for the suffering of Jesus. Be they objects or goals or motives, seven reasons why Jesus, the eternal Son of God, suffered. The first one is this, the Father willed it. The Father willed it. At first glance, it can be difficult to determine what's taking place, who's speaking, who's willing, who's doing what there in verse 10. You may assume the pronoun he there in verse 10 is a reference of Jesus, but it's not. And that's very important for us to catch. It's not of Jesus, it's of the Father. It was fitting that the Father subject the Son to suffering. It was fitting, it was appropriate that the Father send his Son to die on behalf of his saints. Why? Because it was the Father's will to bring many sons and daughters to glory. This is the great salvation that's been referred to just a few verses back. This great salvation that we cannot afford to ignore. It's the Father's will. Remember, this is the message of the Father, not through angels, but through the Son, that the Son would come and declare the glorious gospel, the will of the Father sent by the Son to die on behalf of his church. Now we know that the Son was willing to save us. The Son was willing to redeem us. That's very evident as we look to the cross of Jesus Christ. But we also need to remember and not forget that it was the Father's will additionally. Isaiah 53, verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord, the Father, to crush him. He has put him, Jesus the Son, to grief. When his soul the sons, makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, in the hand of the son. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. You say, how in the world could it be suitable for the eternal Son of God, the sovereign of this world, to be subjected to suffering. Well, number one, it was suitable because it was the will of the Father. And this isn't the only answer. There's six more that we'll see that work together all and are just the seven that come to the top in this passage. And yet this is the beginning place. It was the will of the Father. Not only was it the will of the Father, but look at verse 10. For it was fitting that he should make the founder, Jesus, of their salvation perfect through suffering. Perfect through suffering. Number two, why is it fitting that Jesus suffer? Because he was perfected through suffering. It perfected Jesus. Now, many of you are beginning to squirm a little bit. And to feel a little bit nervous. How in the world could the eternal son of God, sinless as he was from eternity past, be perfected in any way? Of course, Jesus being God in the flesh was already perfect in one sense of the word. But there's another sense that the writer has in mind here, that the spirit of God has in mind. That word means complete or whole or adequate it has a similar word that we find in telescope, the end in sight. 
telos, complete, at the end, adequate, full. In Hebrew, the idea of perfection speaks of death as the completion of one's life, the perfection, the capstone, the ending, the final piece. And so in other words, here in Jesus' mission to take on flesh and to execute the good news, he would have to add to himself a human nature and he would have to suffer. This was part of the plan. This was the completion of the Father's will in his life, that he himself would suffer. We're going to talk more about that. You see, many people think that Jesus was a human, but that he did not suffer. Or that his suffering in his humanity was somehow less than the suffering that we experience. Less painful. Splinters didn't hurt him as bad. The hunger pains didn't affect him as often or as deeply. And this couldn't, just cannot be true. It says in verse 17, skipping down just a little bit, therefore Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. When you think of the humanity of Jesus, do you think it different than your own humanity? It's not. The eternal son of God You've heard me say it dozens of times, added to his divine nature a human nature. And it wasn't fake. It was real in every respect. And this really is the third reason as to why Jesus, the eternal son of God, must suffer. It's because it's part of the human experience. Suffering in this life is a part of the human experience. Verse 11 says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source and that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Who is that one source? Well, it's Adam. Adam's the first man. Adam literally means human. We are all sons and daughters of Adam. He is our source in one sense. And furthermore, Jesus, when he added to himself a human nature, born of a woman, he didn't just appear to be man. There's an ancient heresy, docetism. It comes from the Greek word that means to seem. And it's a Christological heresy. What that heresy says is that Jesus appeared to be human. He seemed to be human, but he wasn't really human. Most people believe that this heresy was actually based on Gnosticism, which believed that there had to be some separation between the secular and the sacred, between the physical and, the, and, and God itself, the spiritual. But it's a falsehood. It's a lie. Addressing this heresy, Ignatius of Antioch said this many, many, many years ago, and not long before he died. This is what he said. So do not pay attention when anyone speaks to you apart from Jesus Christ, who was of the family of David, the child of Mary, who was truly born, who ate and drank, who was truly persecuted under Pontius Pilate, was truly crucified and truly died in full view of heaven, earth, and hell, and who was raised truly from the dead. But if as some godless people, that is, unbelievers, say, he suffered in mere appearance only, being themselves mere appearances, why am I in bonds? 
His message was very clear. Our older brother, Ignatius, was right. He had read the scriptures. Jesus did not only appear to be human, he was in fact human. In every sense of the word, you say, to err is human. That's not true. That's not true. You see, Jesus was created in the same way. He was born in the same way that our father Adam was at the first. Not sinning. Able not to sin. And in that same way, though we born not able to not sin, Jesus was born in a similar way as our first father Adam, having not sinned and not sinning himself. He's not ashamed to call us brothers because we are of the same source. We are truly humans, and he too was truly human and even now is. He identifies with us. And what does it say? Speaking of sanctification, sanctify here means to set apart by God for God. Jesus is the sanctifier. He is the one who has come to earth to set apart Christ's church for Christ. And he is the one who does it. And we are the ones who have been sanctified. And now he says of us who are also humans, we are of the same source. And he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Having grown up in a family with four brothers and four sisters, I can tell you that there were times when I did not want to be identified with the other siblings. Now, you having known a few of them, you might be guessing which one it was. And I'll leave that for your curiosity. There may have been good reason for me not to want to identify with my brothers and sisters at times, but you had better believe that there is a much, much greater reason for Jesus to potentially not want to identify with us, and yet he has. He has. To be human is to suffer. To be human is to be broken, to experience pain, And Jesus didn't just appear to be human. He was human. And he tasted not just of death, but of all the pains in between birth and death that you experience. And what's interesting is that's exactly what the scriptures told us to expect. That's our next point. Number four, why? Why why should Jesus suffer? Why is it fitting that Jesus suffer? Because it was prophesied. Because prophecy very clearly tells us. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. They quote three Old Testament passages, actually two, one in Psalm 22 and the other in Isaiah 8. So on the screen, or maybe in your own copy of the Bible, I would encourage you to turn to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Let's read exactly where this quotation is coming from. Should be on the screen for you if you want to follow along there. Starting in verse 1, we'll skip around a bit. It starts by saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. These two verses, we find a memory. We find a picture, snapshot of Jesus on the cross where he cries out this very psalm. 
identifying himself with a suffering servant there in Psalm 22. Identifying himself as the Messiah who would suffer, whose suffering would involve, in some sense, the Father forsaking him. Jesus quotes this very thing. Verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me or who see me mock me, and they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Is this not what we hear as that scoffing crowd gathered around our Lord and Savior? As he writhing in pain like a worm in the fire, nailed to the cross, being scoffed at and rejected, even calling out to him, he saved others, let him save himself. Let the angels come and rescue him. If he is the Messiah, if he is the Son of God. Skipping down to verse 14. The psalmist prophetically speaking of Jesus and his experience says this, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Again, further establishing the connection between Psalm 22 and Jesus' experience of suffering on the cross. We see it clearly. Verse 19, the psalm turns. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. He goes on in verse 22. The suffering Messiah hanging on the cross, circled about by evildoers. In verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. It's interesting, this story doesn't look too good. Up until this point, it's incredibly clear that this man will not make it. And yet, in verse 22, we read of an incredible level of trust that this brother has in his God, that he has in his Father. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in all of him, all of you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from them, but has heard when he cried to him. Do you see it? Do you see the connection? Do you see what the writer of Hebrews, this preacher, is doing in chapter 2? He wants us to see the connection between Jesus and Psalm 22. But he doesn't stop there. He also quotes Isaiah 8. If you want to, you can skip over there. Additionally, it should be on the screen for you this morning. Psalm 8, or I'm sorry, Isaiah 8, verses 13 to 18. 
Isaiah 8, 13 to 18, this is what the word of God says. This is what the writer of Hebrews again is quoting. But the Lord of hosts, you shall honor him as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel. A trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and many shall stumble on him. Do we not see this in the New Testament? Do we not see the caretakers of the houses of Israel, the mounts of Jerusalem? Do we not see those leaders scoffing and stumbling over Jesus? This rock of offense, stone of stumbling. It says they shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Verse 16 goes on, this prophecy. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, for Yahweh, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. There's so much here. We can see a clear connection between Isaiah 8, 14 and Romans 8. 9.33, or even 1 Peter 2.8, all references to Jesus being that stumbling block, the stone that the builders rejected, having become the chief corner stone. Paul even points out to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the suffering that he experienced that causes stumbling among those whose eyes are blinded. But here's what both of these passages in summary are are pointing us to. They want us to see. One, both of them are messianic. Both of them. Both of them are related to the anointed one who would come and take away the sin of the world. Both Psalm 22 and also Isaiah 8. But both of them are also pointing to the relational aspect that Jesus, the Son of God, has with the children of God or his brothers, as it mentions congregation. And so it's messianic and it's also relational. It wants us to see the relationship, the unique relationship that we, the children of God, have with the only begotten Son of God. More than that, it's incarnational. It's incarnational. It wants us to see that God is, yes, transcendent, but he is also imminent. The God that is above is also in and with. He has come low. Geographical terms. He's here with us. He identifies with us. So this prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. And as it's being fulfilled, we also notice from both of these passages an intense amount of explicit trust that the Son has in the Father in spite of his suffering. And so it's messianic, relational, incarnational, and it demonstrates his sincere and explicit, intense level of trust during suffering. It's clear Jesus' suffering was clearly foretold in the Old Testament. You say, well, that's not a good enough reason. Well, taking them all together, is it not helping to flesh out and help us to understand not just the prophecy and the pictures, but the reality of what Jesus has accomplished for his church through his suffering. The scriptures go on, though. 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. One ancient historian, he said this, speaking of Jesus. He said, what has not been assumed cannot be restored. What has not been assumed by Jesus cannot be restored by Jesus. Jesus truly fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy that he would become a man, that he would dwell among us, that we would behold his glory, that he would take upon himself our sin, and after his resurrection, that he would extend to us his righteousness. One writer, speaking of Jesus, the reality of his humanity, said this, and it makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the street with them and had the synagogue leader in Nazareth known who was listening to his sermons. Jesus may have had pimples. He may have been tone deaf. deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him or vice versa. It could be that his knees were bony. One thing's for sure, he was, while completely divine, completely human. In an effort for us to protect Jesus' divinity, so often we're tempted to ignore his humanity. And that's something that we're just not permitted to do from Scripture. Jesus truly was human. It was the will of the Father in his humanity, that in his, or because of the will of the Father, that he would indeed suffer. And this was prophesied by the Old Testament in many places. He suffered as a human, even to the point of death. And that brings up the fifth reason. Five of seven. We're moving right along. Why did Jesus suffer? Why is it fitting that he suffer? Through his suffering, he would destroy the devil. That's point number five. Through his suffering, he would destroy the devil. Look at verse 14. I'll unpack that. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Satan, the devil, the tempter, the great deceiver, He first tempted Adam, our father, our first father, and he was, in fact, successful, was he not? And now, all of us have been tempted, and all of us have, like our father, Adam, sinned. And like Adam, what we earn for our sin is death. We all earn death. The scriptures make this clear, abundantly clear. The wages of our sin, the payment of our sin for our sin is death. But follow this, Jesus never sinned, never, not once. Had he come to live among us and only lived a righteous life, having never sinned though, he would not have earned death, he would have earned life. And yet he still died. And so we've got this contrast, all of us sinful, deserving death. Jesus, having never sinned, deserving death life. And now we begin to see the the starting point of the great exchange, that he would take our punishment and we would receive his righteousness. 
Jesus hadn't died for our sins, we would still be dead in our sins. Furthermore, if he hadn't rose from the dead, we would still be dead in our sins. But first, he had to die in our place. He had to become human in order to die. He had to become human in order to live that righteous life as a human so that he could extend his righteousness to us. Do you see the connecting piece here? Jesus faced off with death, death that we deserved. And now we are given his life, a life that he deserved. Jesus destroyed death. That word destroy means to render inoperative, to render ineffective. It doesn't necessarily mean to smash to bits, to cease to exist altogether, but it does mean to render inoperative. It's still there. It's just broken. It doesn't work like it used to. Is this not what Jesus has accomplished? Is that not the reality that we face? Each of us will still face death. Each of us. Each of us still sense the presence of Satan and his attacks in our lives. It's true. He is still a roaring lion going around seeking whom he may devour us, First Peter 5 makes clear to us, but know this Christian, his power has been mitigated and his end has been determined. He's been defeated. This goes back to the same idea that we saw last week. This already but not yet. Jesus has all things submitted under his feet and that he's also to sit down and wait till his enemies become his footstool. It's the inaugurated reign of Jesus seen again here. His power has been mitigated, Satan's. And his end has been determined. But not only has Jesus removed the weapon of death from the hand of our enemy Satan, but he delivers us from the fear of that weapon. What do you mean by that? Look at verse 15. It says, not only has Jesus destroyed the power of Satan, but he goes on to say that he delivered all those who, through fear of death, we're subject to lifelong slavery. What's the connection between number six and number five? Well, number six is that he would deliver the slaves. Why did Jesus suffer? Through his suffering, he would deliver the slaves. The slaves. In his book, The Art of Dying, Robert Neal offers several reasons as to why humans fear death. I've used that as a little bit of a, a, a leaning post and I've adapted it a bit. I want to offer you those three reasons slightly reshaped. It's not hard for us to understand, come to terms with death and how it can cause fear in our hearts. Let's break down what's actually happening. Where does that fear actually come from? Well, number one, fear of death is debilitating. What do I mean by debilitating? Well, primarily we fear in death the loss of control. We fear the loss of of control. We come into this world with no control. And every little bit of control that we can find and figure out when I do this, when I scream, people come and help me and change my diaper. When I throw a temper tantrum, I get what I want. We learn how to use the control that we have. And we learn to use that better, most of us, some of us better than others. But then it begins to fade again. What once waxed becomes now waning. The control that we sensed and felt, we lose our grip on. 
It's a terrible helplessness, death. Physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia are on the rise around the world. Euthanize, it comes from the two Greek words meaning good and death. And it's man's sinful human attempt to come to death and experience death on his own terms. To, in a sense, control the way that he'll exit this life. And what are these feeble grasps at? Control. We hate in death that we will lose control. It's appointed unto man once to die. One of the most terrifying things that we read in Scripture, at least apart from, apart from Christ in the gospel. But we fear death because it's debilitating. We lose our control. That's not the only reason. We fear death because it's disappointing. What do I mean by disappointing? Well, secondarily, the, the difficulty with death is that it seems to come too soon before wrongs can be righted and before goals can all be achieved. If you just had a little more time, if you just had one more opportunity, just one more dinner, one more Christmas, one more vacation, whatever it is, it's disappointing because there wasn't enough time to make amends for the sake of levity, we all remember those chilling words. Stop. Put your pencils down. If we just had a little more time, we could answer a few more questions. We could go back over and review. The disappointing piece of death, the fearful piece of death, is that it can often be disappointing. There's a blatant conclusiveness to death. It shuts a door. It closes a book. And finally, never to be opened again. And it's quite scary. Quite scary. The fear of death. It's also fearful because it's disconnecting. It's debilitating, it's disappointing, and it's disconnecting. Death is unavoidable and it comes too soon. But ultimately, what we all fear in death is separation. We fear the separation that we will have from our loved ones. We fear the separation that we'll have from reality. And that cuts us deeply. The fear of isolation, it looms largely on the horizon for each of us. Being alone. Separate from who and what we know dearly. What does fear of death look like in our lives? Well, for some of us, we can be just crushed by anxiety because of these three realities associated with death, these three things that we fear, we could subconsciously and even consciously act in various ways. And one of them is just by flat out being anxious all the time. Another way that we address it is by avoiding it altogether. Not going to funerals, not going to viewings, not talking about death, looking the other way when we drive through or by a funeral procession, we avoid it for fear of it. Out of mind, out of sight, as it were, and yet it still is on the horizon for each of us. But maybe you're not living in anxiety and maybe you're not living in denial. Maybe you're just living in distraction. Another way that we manifest a fear of death is a panicky pursuit of pleasure. A panicky pursuit of pleasure. 
I don't know what it's called, but it's almost like getting into one of those machines, those glass machines that have a fan in it with all these hundreds of dollars just floating around and you get to go in there and you know you've only got 60 seconds and you've only got your pockets and your arms and while you're in there, you're gonna get everything that you can because you know it's gonna end soon. Maybe that's you in this life. You wanna get every pleasure, every joy, whether it's moral or immoral. You wanna get everything you can out of this life and have some sort of a panicky, set, uh, panicky uh, measure because you just don't know when it's gonna end. And that's how you manifest a fear of death. The sermon kinda got gloomy, didn't it? Death is a fearful thing, and yet, this is what it says Jesus came to deliver us from, the fear of death. The truth of the matter is that Christians should have no fear in death. We have nothing to fear, why? In spite of all of these things that you've just mentioned, of course. Why? Our sins are forgiven. We know what lies ahead. For the Christian, death is not separation as it is for the unbeliever. Those apart from Christ know it's reunification. So will we ever be with the Lord. The scripture makes it very clear. It is not death to die for the Christian. Think of that. It's not death for the Christian to die. Why else? Well, we are complete in Christ. What else needs to be accomplished? There's nothing for us to do on the other side of that gloomy river than to search out our great God and King and to worship him as we search him out. As we learn more about him through all of eternity, we will continue to equal to our discovery, praise him. We have nothing else to accomplish but to search him out to behold his face. There's nothing more that we need to do. What has not been accomplished by the work of Christ? One of the tough, toughest parts of death is the unknown. What happens? What will, I, what will I experience? I love it when my wife thinks that I'm brave. Other husbands here can agree with that. Many times she's looked to me for confidence in various situations, and that's because of her intense ignorance and my bold overconfidence. She believes in many situations for me to have already been here before. One area that she could not look to me for strength, though, was in bearing children. You remember those days. You've come to find out you're pregnant. It's very exciting. You begin to nest and do all the things and save money and gather this and that and diapers and friends come around and they help you. But at the end of the day, you sit and think, what will it look like when this baby is actually delivered? And I love that word, delivered, right? Women deliver babies. They're delivered through childbirth, right? I can imagine the anxiety that she felt as she thought, this baby that's in my stomach will one day come out. And she can't look to me for confidence. She can't look to me for hope and for help. I'm not a forerunner in any sense of the word. How comforting it was for Sarah to be able to talk with a mother who had endured the pain of childbirth. She had gone through that experience and now was able to stand with her or sit beside her and say, I've been there, I've gone through this, and I'm on the other side. You will too. Brothers and sisters, death is a fearful thing. 
And none of us in this room can say, have no fear. I've been there before. If you believe it's over in this uh, pompous, overconfident statement, then I've got a bridge. Uh, well, well let's, we'll leave it there. You need help. But what we do have, not a human here sitting with us, but we do have a forerunner. We do have a firstborn among many brethren. We do have the first fruits back from the dead. We do have the firstborn of the resurrection, and that is the Son of God himself. When we consider death, what do we do? We consider Jesus Christ, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, as 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says. He was the first to defeat death, but he will not be the last. He was the first to cross that river, and he will not be the last. He's come through death, and now, as he comes back across, he gives us the confidence and the stability as we face our own death. Mockingly, we declare together, Christian, Oh, death, where is your sting? It doesn't hurt anymore. I'm not afraid of dying anymore, the Christian declares. Oh, grave, where is your victory? You used to be so smug and proud, and now you have lost. You'll not gain another of God's children. Who can declare this? Who can make that statement? Who can boast in that great truth? It's surely not angels. It's not angels who the Son of God helps. It's not angels who comes and helps. It's not angels who he is the firstborn for. Look at verse 16. Who is it? For surely it is not of angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Who are the offspring of Abraham? They're descendants of Abraham. Are we speaking ethnically? No. We're speaking of those who are like Abraham in the sense that they place their full confidence in God's promise to save them through Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Romans and Galatians both make this abundantly clear. It's not ethnic heritage that saves you. It's faith. It's faith in Jesus. It's faith in the gospel message that he came to execute and declare. And like those who follow Abraham, church, we have faith like Abraham in the promises of God. Let me ask you quickly, do you, do you believe that God has provided salvation for you in his son, Jesus? Do you believe that? If that's you if, you, if you truly believe that, then it is not death to die. And you have nothing to fear. He has gone before us and he's come back for, and he will come back to gather us and to take us across that river as well. If that, that's true of you, if you're the seed of Abraham, how do you become the seed of Abraham? Just like Abraham, you place your faith in the promise of God. And you don't neglect this great salvation, this great promise of salvation that was declared by the Son of God, only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17 goes on. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Here's what we see. Our final reason for the suffering of Jesus is that, number seven, through it, 
he became our high priest. Through his suffering, he became our high priest. It said he had to be made like his brothers in every way so that he could stand before God on behalf of the people of God. Here's what I see. Next week, we'll see a very clear comparison between Jesus and Moses. But there's a subtle hint or several subtle hints that I'm seeing bubble to the surface as I look at this text. In our next passage, yeah, we'll look at Jesus being compared to Moses, but it's already begun. You see, Moses was the Egyptian son of Pharaoh. He was the son of the king. Pharaoh thought to be a god. And there's Moses in his house. But what does he do? He leaves all of that behind. Why? So that he could identify with his true Hebrew brothers. He identifies with them. He comes to their aid. But not before he spends time in the wilderness in preparation to deliver his brothers and sisters from slavery. And what do we see in Moses? We see that he was the first to escape the bonds of Egypt. And then knowing the way, he returns to lead the rest of the sons to that promised land. In a similar way, we see with Jesus, only much greater. He left behind the throne room of God, the Father, which was actually his. And where he differs from Moses was that was his, and he leaves it behind. It wouldn't have been sinful for him to stay as it was with Moses. And yet Jesus leaves it all behind, who for the joy that was set before him became a man, identified with his brothers in every way. He escaped the tempting snare of the enemy in the wilderness and now returns and is able to be the first one to defeat the enemy. He goes on to lead many sons to glory. When we think of what Jesus has accomplished for us as our great high priest, it is propitiation, which is the appeasing of God's wrath, the satisfaction of God and concerning his wrath. It's the application of satisfaction for our sins that we committed. The truth of the matter is that God cannot allow our sin to go unpunished. Christ is the merciful high priest doing what Moses and others are unable to do. He sacrificed himself on the cross to satisfy God's wrath for our sins. God gave to Moses the law. And in the law was the sacrificial system. All that really went into this law, Jesus did not delete or remove, but he fulfilled. And therefore, he is the greater high priest. And he was like us in every way. Moving on, 18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now this is not saying that Jesus now knows how tough you have it and so that he can sympathize now with you. No, it is saying that, but it's saying so much more than that. It's not just saying he knows kind of how you feel. Doesn't that make you feel better that Jesus knows how you feel? Well, it should make you feel a little better because he has been through that. 
But imagine yourself having fallen into a pit, and along the way down into that pit, you bump your head on every rock and you scrape your knee, and now you sit in the bottom of the pit, licking your wounds and pouting, and here now Jesus has come along and fallen or jumped headlong into the pit and has experienced every bump and bruise along the way just as you have. Now, as he sits next to you, does it make you feel better that he can sympathize with you? He knows the pain that you're bearing? Of course it does. But in that situation, wouldn't it be far greater if he not only knew our pain, was able to sympathize with our pain, not just subjected to the same level of suffering that we have in some way, give or take, but that if he was greater than our suffering, greater than the victor or the enemy that we face and victorious over death itself, which is that great pit, wouldn't that be far more wonderful? Jesus, because of the incarnation, because of him becoming a man, because of his death, he is now able to save us from sin and he is able to save us from death. And this is the main idea. We're back here again. It was fitting for Jesus, the sovereign son of God, to suffer. Do you see that now? Do you see it more clearly as we've walked through this text? One of the things that I just can't get away from in this text is this. Jesus tasted death, as was introduced last week in verse 9. Jesus tasted death so we could taste life. Think about that. Jesus experienced suffering so that we could experience joy. Brothers and sisters, that's what communion is. We're coming to the Lord's table this morning reminded of that. He tasted death so that we could taste life. As Christians partake of the Lord's Supper, we, we do so knowing that he has done this great thing for us. And because of that, we can enjoy what this reminds us of. The sacred time at the Lord's table is, is for believers who have rested all of their hope on the death and resurrection of Jesus, the suffering and the glorification of our Lord and Savior. If you're not fully resting in what Jesus has already accomplished, I'm gonna ask you this morning that as we partake of the Lord's Supper, that you refrain from partaking in this meal. But for those of you who are visiting with us this morning, if you're in good standing of a like-minded gospel-preaching church, we welcome you to participate with us in the Lord's Supper. However, I encourage you, if you're a baptized member of a local church, I want to ask you that you examine your heart and that you see whether you are worthy at this time to partake. And I don't mean to say in some way that you have been perfect, but are you resting this morning in the finished work of Jesus? Are you lying about the work that he's done by leaning into some other false gospel? Are you lying about the gospel message this morning by withholding forgiveness from some brother or sister here this morning or walking in some unrepentant hidden sin? Before you partake of the wafer and of the juice this morning, I would ask that you repent from those things that you make it right with the one that you've sinned against, be it the person in this room or the Savior of which this, these two elements represent. So if your heart's not right this morning, 
Know that you cannot make it right in and of yourself, but that's exactly what we've been recognizing this morning, that Jesus has made us right. He's given us his righteousness, and now we operate, we live, we look to that truth. And so, Christian, examine yourself, recognizing both the gravity of your sin and also the glory of Jesus' sacrifice displayed this morning in these two elements. And so take some time Do business with God, repent from sin, and look to Jesus now as the music plays, reflect and pray.